episode 30, Stardust or Pile of Cosmic Poo? And welcome to another edition of the Syzygy Podcast. My name's Chris Stewart, sitting opposite me at the microphone as ever, Emily Brunsden. Hi, Emily. Hello, hello. So, 2019 is apparently the International Year of the Periodic Table. I didn't know that until you sent me a link the other day saying, we should do a podcast about this periodic table. Did you know that? I did know that, yes, because there's been all sorts of wonderful international years of, and I always keep my eyes and ears open for good things that uh, I'm going to be really involved in. We had the International Year of Light. Yeah, there was that. International Year of Astronomy. That was a good one. But if you'd asked me, you know, a month ago, so 2019, what do you think it's going to be the International Year of? I wouldn't have picked the periodic table. But these things invariably come around because there are big anniversaries. So the 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 100th anniversary of Einstein's... Uh, big year where he published, you know, three or four or five really big papers that changed the way we see the world. That was back in, what, 2007, 2008. And that became International Year of Physics and everyone went mad for Einstein. This year, International Year of the Periodic Table, because it's 150 years since Mendeleev first put all the atoms, all the different elements that were known because we didn't really know much about atoms at the time, 150 years ago, but took all the different elements that were known at the time and said, I can see a pattern here. This is not just a random collection of stuff. There's, there's a, I can put them into a table, and tables are always good. So how, do, how does that work? We're going to delve into that a little bit today. We're going to talk about the periodic table. But in particular, it's not just the story of stuff and matter and, you know, atoms and things. It's actually also the story of astronomy. It's the story of stellar evolution. It's the story of where all this stuff came from. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get down there, Emily, I just saw in the news the other day a little bit of sad news. We need a, we need a bit of sad violin music in the background here for this one because I saw a report in Scientific American, I'll link to it in the show notes, that says that Opportunity is is gone to sleep and is probably not going to be waking up. Yeah, this is this is really sad. We have kind of known for a while, so this is kind of similar to if you have a terminal illness. We we knew that we saw this one. We coming. knew that curiosity had a terminal. I uh, sorry, curiosity. Um, opportunity, opportunity had a, had a terminal illness. Now this is since. opportunity, the the little rover on Mars, which has been going for fifteen years. Fifteen years. And it was originally, well, we'll be, you know, if it goes for three months, we'll be happy. Uh, And 15 years later, it was still going. But what happened? Well, we had an enormous dust storm on Mars. And ever since then, we've been really not sure if if opportunities made it. Even Curiosity, um, the much, much newer rover on Mars, had issues after the dust storm. So it's unsurprising that finally, after this mega, mega dust storm, um, opportunity solar panels got covered in dust and it just basically couldn't recharge its batteries after that. Yeah, I mean, that's death to a rover, right? If you can't get any energy from the sun, there's nothing you can do. There's no way that you can come back. And for months now, I mean, that was back in the middle of 2018, wasn't it? And for months now, um, the uh, NASA people who have been looking after this mission have been sending out messages across the void saying, Opportunity, you're still there. Hello. And trying all sorts of different commands, saying, try turning it off and on again. You know, try <laughs> try turning your camera this way. Try just anything. Hello, is there anything? And nothing's coming back. And so it sounds like they're finally at a, in a position to say, you know what? 
I think we need to call this one a day, which is which is really sad because this thing's been going for a decade and a half. There have been people who've been working on this for a good part of their working lives and saying goodbye to this funny little machine who's been crawling around on the surface of Mars, covering the distance in 15 years of about a marathon. So it's not been moving terribly quickly, but that's a long way. It's a on long an, way on for another a rover. planet. Yeah, it's a very, very long doing way. amazing science, making all sorts of discoveries for it to finally go quiet. That's a very sad day. So yeah, we're going to miss you. We will. Bye, bye, opportunity. Fortunately, there are still a few other rovers up there doing their thing. There's uh, this Curiosity yep. still up there, and the latest one, Insight. Yes, uh, yep. it's not a rover. Is it? It's a lander, but it's uh, it's got all sorts of instruments bringing back all sorts of crazy and great data. So we're not done with Mars yet, but farewell opportunity. It's been a lovely ride. Listen, on to the, uh, the big subject du jour, the, uh, the periodic table. So I guess before we really get on to the astronomical side of things, let's just talk briefly about what is this thing called the periodic table. Emily, let's start with that. Take us through that. What's the periodic table? There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, yeah, Well, it's uranium, actually a little bit like if you decided one day to take all of your clothes out of the closet, sort them all into the different categories that you have, and then fold them up really, really neatly and put them all back in your drawer in a really nice, orderly way so that the, the socks were together, so that your trousers were together, but then they were color-coded and organized by, by season, by weight. It's kind of a bit like that. If you okay, that's never going to happen in my life, but I like the analogy. <laughs> well done. I've never heard that analogy for the periodic table before. I like it. So it's organizing stuff. Yes, right? yeah. And so what it is, and we've got a, I must be up front, we've got a chart in front of us here, we have, so we yep. can cheat and have a look at the periodic table. Yeah, we haven't got all this committed to memory, or at least I haven't. I haven't. When I was in uh, in high school, we had to memorize the first 20 elements, and I could remember the first four. That's about it. Yeah. Um, I can do a little bit better, but not <laughs> much. Um, but what, what, what we have is basically we've got seven rows in the periodic table, and then we've got columns. And so the rows and the columns are organized, and they're organizing the chemical elements by their different properties. And there's three key things that we organize them by. So we organize them by atomic number which is uh, the number of um, protons that they have in the nucleus. So we go from one all the way up to, I think we're up to 118. Sounds about right. Yep. We have those in order. We also um, arrange them by electron configuration. And this is why the periodic table sort of splits. It kind of has a slightly U shape in it because what it's not about the number of electrons that you have in your atom. It's about how many more you have to go before you fill up a particular level. And so sometimes that's only two, and then sometimes that's more. Yeah. So that's why that's why they're organized in that way. So the periodic table, just at its at its most basic level, it's it's organizing the the stuff that we find around us in the world. And by stuff, ultimately we figured out we're talking about atoms, different kinds of atoms. And and scientists realized over many, many years that that if you break stuff down, you you can find find things which are hydrogen, and that's a kind of atom, and you can find carbon, and that's a kind of atom, and oxygen. And if you look at those very, very carefully, you find patterns in them. And what we ultimately realized was that those different atoms, not only do they have different properties, but those properties are related to how those atoms are composed, how many protons they have in their nucleus, positively charged protons, and how many electrons they've got going around the outside, the negatively charged electrons. And so it's the, the periodic table is a combination of the atomic physics 
how the atoms are put together, and then the chemistry, how those atomic configurations fit together and react in different ways. Yeah, and it's, there's a bit of a, a weird terminology that we use as well. So we talk about elements because they're kind of elementary, these atoms. So another word for atoms that we use is elements. And particularly in astronomy as well, we use chemical elements. So they're not chemicals as you have under your sink. They're actually individual species of these different atoms. So right. they're not complex things that we're going to find out cleaning bleach or something out in space. They are individual things like carbon and oxygen. Yeah, so you can have individual individual atoms of a particular element. Hydrogen is an element, helium is an element, carbon is an element. You can put those different atoms together to make molecules and so on. Anyway, so that's the basics of the periodic table. So we've got this, this table which is organising things by uh, atomic structure and by, by, um, by similarity in, in its chemical reaction and, and how it behaves in the world. And so you end up with these rows, which is talking about increasing numbers of protons in these atoms. So as you go up through the periodic table, you're getting more and more protons in the nucleus. And then you've got columns, which are talking about how similar groups of, of elements, similar kinds of atoms uh, behave in the world, how they, how they behave chemically with each other. Yeah, and that's very useful. So you can take, for example, the very last row, because they're basically, they've got their shells all filled up with electrons. That means that they're not really interested in what other chemical elements are doing around them. They're not interested in trading electrons very much. So we know that those particular elements are really unreactive. Right. So that's your helium and your neon and your argon and so on. What are called the, what are they? The, the no noble gases. The noble gases. And they're noble because they're sort of aloof and standing off saying, no, I'm not going to react with you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah. So there's all these different ways of, of putting these things together into the periodic table. And that's what was, at least in its initial form, put together 150 years ago. And that's worth celebrating. But it's not just finding out the structure of all the stuff around us. There's actually some really interesting astronomy in the periodic table as well. So let's find our way into that. Emily, where do we start? Well, I think a really good place to start is actually a quote from Carl Sagan. Because it's always a good place to start. Always a good place to start. Um, so I'm going to read the quote. It says, the nitrogen in our DNA... The calcium in our teeth, the iron in our blood, the carbon in our apple pies were all made in the interiors of stars, collapsing stars. We are made of star stuff. Very nice, Carl. And I, I like the fact that he got a little bit of American apple pie in there as well. <laughs> he speaks for all of us, but mainly for the Americans. So thanks for that. Yep. Okay. So what he's saying is all the stuff that we see around us, all the different kinds of atoms and all the different elements are formed in stars, in collapsing stars. We are made of star stuff. What's he talking about? So we're talking about, actually, if you come down to the atom level, how do you make an atom? Well, the very, very, very overwhelming majority of all atoms in this entire universe were made in stars or related to things that stars do. Right. Okay. So when he says we are made of star stuff. What he means is that all the stuff that we're composed of, all the, all the things that we can see around us, ultimately we can trace back to things that stars do that gave us those, those elements. Yeah. So yeah. those elements originated in stars, which is a really cool idea. Really. Very cool. All right. So I'm looking at this periodic table that you've got on the table here in front of us, um, and I will put an image of that up on the website, up on the, uh, in the show notes. Let's start at the very beginning of that, the very first element on the periodic table, the simplest one. It's just one proton, 
with one electron going around the outside of it. It's hydrogen. And you've got that circled. And it says, hydrogen, nearly everything. All right, let's start there. What do you mean by that? So this is an astronomer's periodic table. Right, okay. Now, it's actually color-coded by where the chemical elements come from. So we've got different processes that we're going to go through, that we're going to talk about all the different places that we can form different chemical elements. And... So it's color-coded by that, and it's actually shaded. So some of the elements can be formed in more than one way. So it's shaded kind of about what fraction were formed in each of the ways. Uh, and if you really want to go down to the, the nitty-gritty of what astronomers care about um, mostly in the universe. And uh, so the thing that astronomers get quite a lot of flack for is the way we classify brutally the, the periodic table. And the way we do that is looking at the universe, we have hydrogen, we have a little bit of helium, and then everything else in the periodic table we call a metal. Because it's... <laughs> Even though it's demonstrably not. Even though it's not. And a metal has a very specific chemical meaning, and the chemists get really annoyed when we call things like uh, calcium a metal. But it's because it's so insignificant, at least proportionally, to the amount of hydrogen and helium, it's just kind of you have hydrogen, helium, and Metals. Metals. <laughs> that's that's all you've got. Okay, so on your astronomer's periodic table here, very special one. So we start with hydrogen, which is nearly everything, and we've got helium, element number two, which is labelled everything else. Everything so, else. So, okay, we need to start <laughs> with this and we need to unpack this. Nearly everything and everything else. Talk us through hydrogen and helium from an astronomer's point of view. Well, hydrogen and helium, most abundant two species in the universe. Like to what degree? Oh, like 99.9, well, it depends if you do it by mass or volume, but yeah, they're they're hugely, overwhelmingly the two most abundant. So the vast, vast majority of everything in the night sky, everything in the universe is hydrogen and helium. To to, to a good approximation, that's it. That's the lot. Which is quite strange because that's not the same as on Earth, for example. No, but we that's have to quite think, different. We have to think universally in right. the really literal sense of the okay. word. Right? So we need to step outside of our, the bounds of our, of our planet and think we're just a little bit of a special, special little corner of the universe. The rest of the place isn't like this. It's mostly hydrogen and helium. Okay, so where'd all that come from? Well, they're also the oldest two elements. Right. They go all the way back to the Big Bang. So the process that we formed hydrogen and helium is called Big Bang Nucleosynthesis. Good term. Big Bang. So that's the beginning of the universe where everything just went bush out of a singularity. And we'll talk about that maybe some other time. That's really complicated. But the Big Bang. Lots and lots and lots of energy, which eventually formed particles, which eventually, you know, this soup of protons and electrons and stuff. And then it eventually expands enough and cools down enough that you can form atoms, but only the simplest ones. And yeah. the simplest one is a proton and an electron going, zip, we can stick together. That's an atom. That's hydrogen. That would have been pretty much everything, except that you can whack a couple of hydrogens together to make some helium, can't you? Yeah, and that was basically what happened, in, or most of it happened in the first three minutes uh, of the universe. And, well, with a little bit of um, expansion and cooling, we had about 20 minutes to form the what we call Big Bang nucleosynthesis elements. Now, so- I'd, I'd like to just take a, just a moment to just let that one sink in, folks. Uh, we're talking 13.8 billion years ago, and Emily's talking with great confidence about what happened in the first, say, I don't know, three to 20 minutes of the universe. But... That's how physics goes at the moment. We can work backwards and with reasonable confidence 
predict these things because we can we can model basically the temperature that that sort of big soupy mess of um, protons and ne- uh, neutrons and uh, electrons had to be, and once you once you start expanding and cooling, you very quickly at the twenty minute mark reach the point where you can't stick atoms together in this nucleosynthesis anymore because it's, you're too cold basically. So we only get um, the the first twenty well twenty minutes minus three minutes. Um, to stick together these elements, the overwhelming majority is hydrogen. You get quite a reasonable, a reasonable chunk of helium is in there as well, and tiny little bits of other things like beryllium as well. Right, the next couple of levels up, but then once it's cooled enough, you're not getting that kind of fusion anymore. You know, at the, at, in the in the heart of stars, in the heart of the sun, you've got huge temperatures and pressures which are squeezing these things together and hydrogen can turn into helium and hydrogen and helium can turn into other things. But that's in the core of a star. Eventually, after 20 minutes, the universe had cooled enough where actually, you know what, we can't do this anymore. There's not enough energy. And so hydrogen, helium, tiny amount of other. And then that's it. That's, that's it. what we've got. The universe is now filled with hydrogen and helium to a to a large Maybe a couple of metals. Maybe a couple of metals, a couple of other bits. Okay, so that's it. That's our starting yep. point. So we've got nearly everything and everything else and then a little bit of just, you know, rounding error. Okay, what happens from there? Well, we're going to see this nucleosynthesis term crop up a few times. So it's worth saying that this is, you're right, it is a fusion. That's the basic process that we're looking at. When we talk about nucleosynthesis, what we're also acknowledging, I guess, is that it's not quite so simple as smash to bits together and you get a bigger bit. There's actually cyclic processes that go on. There's lots of really interesting chains of reactions and how much material there is in different chains and different parts of the cycles, how long it takes different steps in the cycle to happen. Those are all really important and there's still things that we're measuring today. So nuclear astrophysics, astrophysicists for example, are really interested in knowing things like um, how big atoms are, how likely they are to smash together and their Therefore, you know, what are these chains? What are these really complicated processes? So we've got nuclear synthesis as kind of this fancy word to describe a whole series uh, of different nuclear reactions going on, yeah. including fusion. It's, it's fascinating because the, the, the energy, the little dance of energy that's involved in these things, as you said, it's, it's not just a matter of taking two small things, bashing them together. And, hey, you've got like bits of plasticine, you know, smack them together and you've got a bigger piece of plasticine. No, it doesn't quite work that way. And there are there are very subtle shifts in energy when you try to combine one nucleus with another nucleus and it'll spit out a bit because that's just a bit too much. And if you if you don't go through the right path, you can't get to a particular element. It's it's a it's a fascinating journey. No wonder it's taken quite a long time to actually figure a lot of this stuff out. So as we work our way up through the periodic table then, we had hydrogen, which was nearly everything. We've got helium, which is pretty much everything else. The next one on the table is lithium, and that's got multiple colors on your periodic table, which means from what you said earlier, it can be formed in multiple ways. So we're now getting into the interesting part of the table, into the metals. So what's happening here? So the table is super complex, but we're going to generalize. Okay. So the first bit of the table, so let's say if you're looking at it, it's the colors up to sort of the end of the yellowy bit. Um, if you're thinking about numbers, then we're going up to the chemical element of maybe uh, 20, 20 to 30, kind of in those that area. So we've gone through carbon and nitrogen and oxygen and all the way up to sort of, say, around titanium, vanadium, uh, iron, you know, we're getting up into into that kind of area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so we can broadly call these couple of rows in the periodic table uh, Starpoo. Starpoo, okay. 
All right. What do you mean? What? So these are chemical elements that were formed inside stars, and they kind of just get left over once the star has died. Okay, so the the excreta of stars, star poo, that makes it that makes it sound not terribly pleasant. They don't get ejected from stars. They're still hanging around inside the stars. Yeah, so particularly the elements, uh, so we call about 6 to 26, which is carbon all the way up to iron. Those are formed in the very um, sort of standard, uh, what we call stellar nucleosynthesis reactions. So this is, the a star is going to be fusing hydrogen to helium, and then it goes through, up there, towards the end of its life, it starts fusing higher and higher elements, because it runs out of hydrogen. So it sort of takes the next best thing, which is helium, and then runs out of helium, so it takes the next best thing. And it tries to keep itself alive by fusing heavier and heavier elements, sometimes in some, again, some really complex uh, cycles, just to try and keep itself going. Now, that makes it sound very, you know, anthropomorphic. It sounds like the star is going, I've got to quick, find me some stuff. I need to fuse it together. What's actually happening from a physics point of view is that, you know, a star doesn't have to fuse stuff together. So what's the mechanism here? And it's that even though it might sound a little counterintuitive, if you bang a couple of atoms together, a couple of light atoms together, if the product can be lower in energy, right, if you take some hydrogen and it can form in in an interesting fusion way some helium, which is a larger chunk of, of atomic stuff, of nuclear stuff, that's lower in energy. And so it's energetically favorable to do that. If you bang a couple of lighter atoms together to make, I don't know, oxygen, that's lower in energy. It's energetically favorable to do that, which means that if it's, you know, if you've got enough stuff bashing together, eventually that is going to happen. Turning hydrogen into helium, if there's lots of hydrogen around, then there's plenty of possibilities to do that. Once you run out of hydrogen, you run out of helium, you've still got lots of stuff bumping together, which can energetically turn into other things through these nuclear fusion processes. And that can keep going on and making bigger and bigger, bigger things, putting out more and more energy until eventually, what, you've you've made the entire periodic table? No, you run out, unfortunately. Ah, so you run to the end yeah. of that line. So the reason why the star kind of has to do it, if, if you like, is because it's got to hold itself up against gravity. And it can only fuse uh, things together and output energy to hold itself, out, itself up against gravity until it reaches about iron, uh, maybe a little bit of a couple of species beyond that. So the, the gravity is squeezing down, and when it squeezes down, it makes everything incredibly hot and dense, and those nuclear processes take over and they keep going, if you like, pushing out against that gravity. I and mean, the gravity's you know, really heating things up and those processes will keep going until there aren't any processes left. Yeah, because beyond iron, you don't get energy out if you put two heavy nuclei together. Right. Okay. So at that point, it starts becoming energetically unfavorable. So does that mean if you do try to bash some iron with something else, you might get something bigger, but then that that would fall apart and go the other way. It'd start coming down Well, you down need to again. put energy into it. Yeah. So it's not, the star's no longer producing energy to hold itself up against gravity. So this is why on my diagram, I labeled it iron as the star killer. Ah, okay. So right there in the middle of the periodic table, iron, the star killer. So that's give or take, that's as far as you go in nuclear, what did you call it? Nuclear synthesis? Stellar nuclear synthesis. Stellar yep. nuclear synthesis. Iron is the end point. That's the star killer. And what happens there? The stars burn through everything else. It's made a lot of iron. Uh, but what happens at that point? 
So depending on how big a star it is, it will basically end the final phases of its life. It will, um, it's, it can't hold itself up against gravity. So if it's a fairly small star, then uh, during the kind of la- later stages of its life, it's probably thrown off a lot of its outer layers through big pulses and exciting things happening on the surface. And uh, then it eventually just blows away all of its atmosphere and you're just left with a very small core which has no energy production anymore so it's just going to cool down from its initial temperature very slowly and this is what we call a white dwarf a white dwarf so are you telling me that a white dwarf is basically just the leftover lump of star poo that's is that just what you're saying a bit of star poo right and that's got your carbon nitrogen oxygen all these things that the star tried was fusing until it ran out of energy basically okay and but all the other stuff a lot of layers around the outside have been blown off into the into the void to go and what spread out throughout the universe and maybe ultimately start making other things exactly and they'll take some of those elements that the star was fusing with it so if you only started with hydrogen and helium in the in the big bang then the first stars were only made of hydrogen and helium right that's all you've got that's what you have and then they were able to fuse you know things like um, nitrogen and all that kind of stuff and then once they well, the the first stars were probably big explosions, right? We're probably talking about very, very large stars that really exploded and supernova pushed out all this material back into um, the the, star, the space between stars, the interstellar medium. That got swept up and formed the next generation of stars. So the next generation of stars would already be forming with hydrogen and helium, but a bunch of other stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. So all the stuff that the star was able to fuse in its core as well. Zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. But it doesn't stop there. Okay, because we've, we've got as far as sort of iron, which is element number 26, out of... Well, I mean, we can go all the way up to 118, but the last 10 or so of those or more uh, have only ever been made in accelerators in the laboratory and that kind of thing. So we can ignore them, but that's not even, like, that's, what, a third of the way, a quarter of the way to the end of the periodic table? There's a lot left over. So there's more to this story. There is more, and it gets really exciting from here as well. Okay. So the elements, um, basically silicon to nickel, so that's 14 to 28. Mm-hmm. Now that kind of forms part of the boundary that we, um, so it's overlaps here. Yeah. Um, but some a lot of those elements are also formed, particularly the ones that are heavier than iron, mm-hmm. are formed in these enormous supernova explosions. Okay. All right. So just remind us then, what are the con- what are the conditions for a supernova as opposed to not a supernova? So you need to have a huge mass of a star, basically eight times the mass of the sun as a beginning point. And then when a star that big reaches the end of its life, instead of shedding its layers and becoming just cooling or becoming a cooling white dwarf, the core is actually far too big to hold itself up against gravity. So it's going to it's not just going to sort of fade out with a whimper, it's going to go out with a bang. It's, it's going to go out with a bang because right. that core is going to very rapidly shrink. There's all sorts of wonderful processes that go on that means that the, the core kind of collapses and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks and shrinks. Um, if it if it's a sort of a 8 to 10-ish or 12 uh, solar masses, then you're looking at forming a neutron star, which is a super, super, super dense version of the core. So white dwarfs are quite dense. Mm-hmm. Neutron stars are super, super much, dense. Much, much more dense. And so super dense and super 
I mean, that's a transition to a completely different kind of material, isn't it? It's almost like a like a nuclear soup that that the star becomes in 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 essence like one big atomic nucleus. And so, is that what what causes ultimately causes the supernova? Is that 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 shrunk down and formed this really very quite hard ball at the center of the star. Yeah, I always like to think of it as a bit like a cartoon where you've lost all your energy, so the core kind of starts shrinking, but the outer layers of the star don't know that the core started shrinking. Right. So it's a little bit like um, a, a cartoon character running off the edge of a cliff and <laughs> taking a while to realize that... Doesn't know it's supposed to fall yet. There's no ground beneath them, right? right. So the outer layers of the, the star don't know that the core has shrunk for a little bit, and then when they do find out, because gravity um, is communicating to them that ooh, suddenly things are happening inside the whole outer atmosphere shrinks down and then starts to bounce off the core and this is the enormous explosion of the supernova that you get the shrinking the bounce and then this huge ejection of material out into space and and this is huge i mean let's let's not make any mistake about this this is a massive explosion i mean i've heard it said that that a supernova can outshine the entire rest of the galaxy that it's in for relatively short periods of time, but that's a hell of a lot of energy. Exactly, and it's that real energy production that's important for these, this process because all that energy can go into smashing together these heavier elements. They can suck in a little bit of that extra energy and form much, much bigger elements. Right, so the, the rest of the periodic table, all of these really heavy elements were going up sort of beyond iron up into... You know, copper and zinc, which are not much further up, but we've got, you know, yttrium and molybdenum and Rutherford and, and all of these way up through the periodic table. They're being formed in this massive explosion where in the ordinary interior of a star, which is doing its fusion thing, there's like no way this is going to happen. You'd have to suck up way too much energy to do this. But suddenly in a supernova, hey, we got plenty of energy. What do you want to make? You know, yeah. Do you want to make this stuff? Fine, we can make that stuff. Let's get one of these and one of these and whack them together. And suddenly you've got a really big element. And that's where all of that comes from in a supernova. Yeah, and we can call this kind of bottom half of the periodic table basically star remnant poo. Star remnant poo. So we've got star poo, which is all of the heavier normal elements like iron, and then you've got star remnant poo, which are all the really big and typically quite radioactive elements that uh, that we do see around us in the world. Yeah. Cool. So that's really, really quite exciting. And we can see this, and we have actually observed um, the gamma rays coming from very, very heavy elements in, for example, supernova 1987A. Mm -hmm. And so we know quite a lot about what elements are being produced in supernova based on the types of radiation that they're producing after they've been formed. That's really cool. I mean, we see around us here on Earth in this this funny place that we that we, that we live on, which for so many years we thought was normal and then we realized actually no vast majority of the, of the universe is actually just hydrogen and helium and that you're pretty pretty strange earth but we dig out of the ground all these strange elements like uranium and go where'd that come from where could that possibly come from and then you look at at a supernova as you said like 1987a which was a supernova that we spotted in 1987 hence hence the name um and you're saying that you can actually see things like the the, the radioactive signature of uranium in that remnant. Yeah. That's yeah. cool. That's very, very cool. And so that means that the composition of the Earth is is star remnant poo. That this star is remnant poo. We formed from the stuff that's left over from exploding stars. 
Yeah, yeah. And even more so, because this is the brand new result, and this is why this periodic table got updated a couple of years ago, is it gets even better. Okay. It gets even better. Because that was good enough. Because that was a lot of energy, right? The supernova itself was a lot of energy. But there are some events in the universe that have even more energy. Okay, more than supernova. So what are we, how, what, how big? So remember back to uh, 2016 when we first had a go at looking at some of the most energetic events in the universe and the way we detected them at first was via gravitational waves. Oh, yes, yes. The first detections of of the gravity waves with the LIGO detector. We're talking about colliding black hole, colliding supermassive black holes. Yeah, those were the first things we discovered. And then later, one of the second, I think it was the second discovery or the Anyway, early discoveries. (laughs) One of the very early discoveries. Early days for life. Was we actually got to see two neutron stars merging together. So these are these are neutron stars, or in the in the first one, black holes. Neutron stars um, orbiting around each other, very close, and and slowly but surely losing their orbital energy, getting closer and closer and closer until they eventually collide and combine, and that's stupidly energetic because a stupidly energetic event is the only thing that we have a chance of seeing at this point in terms of gravity waves so how how much bigger than a supernova are we talking about a lot a lot yeah a lot bigger because imagine you've got two giant balls of super dense neutrons and you're going to smash those two together and we actually got to see the um afterglow and this um, from different telescopes around the world as well so we didn't just have the gravitational waves we had lots of observations from telescopes as well so something that energetic what does that give us in terms of the periodic table? Well, we were able to understand a lot of the, the bottom half, if you like, of the periodic table, where or how at least what fraction of those elements are caused by these neutron star collisions. Right, okay. And it's quite a lot. Right. It's quite a lot. So up until that point, there was perhaps a bit of an assumption that, well, all of this stuff presumably comes from supernova explosions. It's not an easy thing to study, I would imagine, waiting for a supernova and then going, quick, look for plutonium. But you can get a bit of a sense for where these things are coming from and in what proportions with the more information that we're getting from the gravitational waves. Yeah, yeah. So if you're looking at the table, then we're looking from uh, niobium to plutonium. Mm-hmm. So this is 41 to 94. Okay, so we're getting right up there. Yeah. So these are the ones in these neutron star collisions. It's really that you need a lot of energy and you need that energy to transfer between the uh, particle or the between the atoms very, very quickly. So it's a very rapid process. Uh, and it's how you get these gravitational, um, sorry, it's how you get these uh, super heavy elements forming. So it was a GW170817, the gravitational uh, wave detection, that actually helped us nail down the fractions, at least, of these elements that we're finding out there in the universe. Wow. Or where, so that, where the, each of those elements is being formed. So that's a really interesting part of this whole new branch of astronomy, this gravitational wave astronomy that's opened up just in the last couple of years, is not just about testing you know, Einstein's theory of, of relativity and, and how that how that plays out in the in the universe in terms of gravity waves. But also, yeah, you know what, these are really energetic events. That can teach us a lot about where the stuff comes from, all the way up to the heaviest naturally forming element we've got, which is plutonium, 94. Everything beyond that, americium and, and beyond, all the way up to 118, they're only seen in colliders and, and laboratory experiments. Wow, that's cool. It's really cool. And if you think about then the summation of where all the elements in the universe have come from, they've come from 
enormously nasty big explosions or the cores of stars i mean these are not lovely places to go and have a picnic right these are some of the most energetic environments that we've had in the universe and ever will have in the universe and the summation i think is that most of the stuff we have in the universe can be summed up as either big bang poo star poo or stellar remnant poo I don't know. I, I kind of like Carl Sagan's version better. <laughs> well, that does bring us to the end of this periodic table-tacular episode of, of the Syzygy podcast. Emily, I, I don't know. I'm still pretty uncomfortable with this whole notion that humans and everything around us and everything that we love is just universal poo but I guess we can just go with that. If you have an opinion out there in the internet about that particular concept and you'd like to get in touch with us, Emily, how should they do that? Well, first of all, you need to catch us on Twitter. Yes, yes, so, on Twitter at SyzygyPod. That's right. And uh, if you follow that through as well, you'll be able to see brand new episodes when they're posted. You'll get the, be the first to know via Twitter. Uh, but you can also find out that through our Facebook page. Yes, indeed. Yes, so indeed. if you go and have a look on Facebook and just search for Syzygy, a G podcast you're gonna you're gonna yeah, come across you'll find us or if you want to go directly there facebook.com slash pod basically if you if you're in doubt just see if you can find us as syzygy pod and that's probably us um we're on instagram as well syzygy pod you can go and find us there and the other way that you can get in touch with the show and that you can actually help the show if you enjoy what we do and you want us to help us do it even more bigger and better is you can get in touch with us through patreon you can become a patron of the show patreon.com slash pod of course and uh you can go and sign up to throw a little bit of cash our way to help us do what we do what does that mean it helps us to keep the lights on basically it helps us to keep the website going it helps us to keep the podcast going if we get enough it helps us to travel to south america in 2020 to go and see an eclipse but hey you never know your luck that so that would be an awesome thing for some of you to do but the other way that you can help us is just by simply talking us up we'd love to grow the audience we want to reach as many people as we possibly can to talk about the great stuff that's out there in the universe so tell your friends tell your family just tell the world give us some reviews on your podcast network of choice and we'll be forever grateful otherwise we'll be back again in another week or so for the next edition of Syzygy we made it to episode 30 I'm not quite sure how we did that yeah and I promise in the next episode I won't call you a pile of poo (laughs) thanks mate catch you next time If Sagan had said that on his show, it would never have been picked up for a second. <laughs> Not a chance. Well, we're used to this idea of being so romantic about it. We are, and basically we're just the caca of the universe. The leftover bits. <laughs> the useless bits that stars don't need anymore in a lot of cases. They really want the hydrogen. Yeah. They yeah. want us. The hydrogen and then the helium so they can talk about it. Sulfur, Californium, Infirmium, Berkelium, and also Mendelevium, Einsteinium, Nobelium, and Argon, Kryptonian, Radon, Xenon, Zinc, and Rhodium, and Chlorine, Carbon, Cobalt, Copper, Tungsten, Tin, and Sodium. These are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. Uh,